Hey everybody, welcome to the Life Canton Podcast. My name is Jared Van Forrest and I'm one of the pastors here. Hope you're having a wonderful day. Roger is out on vacation this week, so you get to hear me twice, once in the intro and uh, again in the sermon today. Uh, but well, first of all, if you're new here, thank you for joining us. We'd love to have you get connected. You can do that by going to our website at lifecanton.org and then click on that connect button. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your story, how you got connected with us, and then um, maybe help you take a next step as well. And then also, everything that we do is powered by your giving, your generosity. So for those of you who have been faithfully giving to Life Canton and our vision to reclaim our identity in Jesus, to bear the torch of Christ's justice and love, thank you for that giving. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, it makes a difference. It makes an impact. Um, just a couple things to give you a heads up on for this message specifically. Um, there's, a, there's an image that I point to on a screen that obviously you won't be able to see, but uh, the image is of, a, of a, a man with a sort of a police-looking uniform. So that's, that's all you're going to miss on the podcast. Uh, but then the second thing is there's some um, so unfortunate family business, I guess, um, things that, that have happened in our church specifically. So if you're not part of our church, uh, some of the names and events might not mean anything to you, but um, you're certainly welcome to listen. And, uh, and then I would just ask for your prayers for our church as we're going through um, a challenge and uh, just a, uh, some sad news um, that, that struck our church family. So um, be praying for that. Uh, we are in a series called Mark, and we're looking at the gospel according to Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and so I hope you enjoy the message. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm very grateful that you are here today for multiple reasons. I'll get into why that is a little bit later on, but thank you for being with us, and especially if you're newer here, we want to make sure that you get connected as well. It's going to be a QR code that comes up on the screen in just a little bit. You can take your phone out right now, go ahead and scan that. It's going to take you to our digital connect card, and then you can fill out some information about yourself and uh, take your next steps to get involved here and to make connections. And if you have any trouble with the QR code, you can visit us out in the lobby and we'll be happy to meet you and greet you and help you get connected in that way as well. Uh, we are in a series called Mark. We're in the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. We kicked it off last week. We had uh, Vincent here, a friend, and he brought all kinds of energy, which is good. I love having Vincent here. Uh, hopefully he'll be back again sometime in the future. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, this, this week I'm going to take us into chapter 2. Um, and all throughout this summer, as we go throughout this series called Mark, we're going to be going through all of the chapters, but each of the chapters is filled with different stories, and chapter two had four different stories, so I thought, you know, I've preached about all of them in different ways and different scenarios in the past, and I thought, well, which one do I want to do? Which one would, uh, would need to be appropriate for our church, for this season, for this time? And so instead, what I did is just put out a poll on social media, and you all voted on which one you wanted. You voted on a section of Mark chapter 2 that you wanted. So you voted for it, and if this doesn't go well, then it's on you, really. Uh, so you just need to know that ahead of time. But last week, I loved what Vincent said. He, he, he preached a lot. He gave a whole lot of context just for the author, uh, but then actually went into chapter 1, which was super helpful to hear about and hear how God used uh, Mark specifically. But there were two lines that stuck out to me personally that were really impactful for me, uh, maybe for you as well. He said that God can use you even if you're a screw, right? Even if you've screwed up, God can still 
use you. And he said this other line, that you are not defined by your screw-ups. Raise your hand if you needed to hear that last week, or maybe you need to hear that this week. Like, we are not defined by our screw-ups. God can still use you in the midst of your screw-ups. But what if you're, like, in a different category than a screw-up, right? Like, what if there's, like, a worse category that you're in that's bigger and, 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 and worse than being a screw-up. Like, would you still say that? Would you still say, God can use you, you're not defined by your screw-ups? Would you say that to your enemy? Like, would you say that to the people that you just cannot stand, that you hate? Would you say, yeah, God can still use you? Would you say that? Or even worse, is there a worse category than your enemies? How about those who collaborate with the enemy? They're, like, they're kind of like one of you, they're one of us, but they sort of partner with the enemy to make my life worse. Would you still be able to say, God can still use you, you're not defined by that? That might be a little harder to say, right? Harder to say to somebody who's a collaborator with the enemy. Let me give you more of a real-life example, if I could. I watched uh, the movie The Pianist uh, several times. It's one of my favorite movies. It's about this uh, story of actually a real-life pianist named uh, Spielman. I'm not going to say his first name because it's very hard for me to pronounce. Uh, But Spielman is a piano, piano player, and the movie documents kind of his story. And it takes place right before World War II at the beginnings of the Holocaust and when that's all happening. And there's a pretty impactful event when Nazi Germany starts to take over Poland, but more specifically Warsaw, Poland. And as they're coming into the area, what they're doing is starting to slowly but surely uh, round up all of the Jews in Warsaw. And what they do is they put them into smaller and smaller areas of the town called ghettos. So the start this ghetto in Warsaw where all of the Jews are placed. But Nazi Germany needs some help in doing this. And so they sort of deputize uh, these Jewish ghetto police is what they're called. They're other Jews, but they are sort of uh, brought onto the team of the enemy, essentially the enemy to the Jews, to round up other Jews and to put them into the ghetto and eventually to put them on trays Trains where they are led to their death, led to concentration camps. I want to show you a picture of how this is depicted in the movie. Um, There's this image of this guy named Itzhak Heller. Itzhak Heller. Picture is just going to come up in just a moment of this man who is deputized. He's he's given sort of an official-looking uniform, but he still has an armband on to uh, to to identify him as a Jew. But one Polish historian says that these Jewish ghetto police were actually far more brutal in some cases than the Nazis themselves. Collaborators with the enemy, making the Jews' life a living hell. This is Itzhak Heller. He's one of these figures. They hated these people. Yes, they hated the Nazis, but they hated the collaborators with the enemy even more because of how violent, how brutal they were. They made the Jews' life a living hell. What do I talk about that? Brings up the question, could God use somebody like that? Still? Are they defined by their screw-ups? Mark introduces us to a person like that in chapter 2 that we're going to look at here in just a second. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, can God use even our enemies, or can God use even those who collaborate with the enemy? 
If you have a Bible, go to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. We're going to look at this story together. I'm going to read it uh, in my Bible as well as on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in that way as well. Let's go to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. All right, we'll, we'll talk about Levi in just a second, the kind of person that Levi was, that we can assume he was. But I want to give us a little bit of context before we get into this story. So far, the only people that Jesus has explicitly said to uh, follow me and be my disciple or some version of that phrase are only four people so far. All, so far, all he has called is Simon, who we call Peter, but for the purposes of this message, I'll just refer to him as Simon. Simon and his brother Andrew, and then James and John. All four of these uh, young men, young boys really, are, uh, when they are called by Jesus, when they're called to follow him, to be his disciples, they are all for fishing at, at different times when Jesus approaches them, which tells us something about their story. They are doing the craft or the career of their father. They have become fishermen. Now, that maybe doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but to them, to the Jewish culture, that meant a whole lot. So uh, what was known and what was expected, if you were a young Jewish boy in the ancient world, is that you grow up learning the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You learn that all throughout your childhood, and eventually by the age of 12, you are supposed to have that memorized. Memorized. Most of us, if we're told, hey, memorize Jesus wept, shortest, book in the, shortest verse in the Bible, it would take us a week to make sure to get that one down. They memorized the entire Torah. And if they were extra special, if they not only memorized it, but then they were told that they understood it well, that they could interpret the Torah well, that they could then go and, and further their schooling in a sense. And they would go and ask a rabbi, could I follow you? Could I follow you and be your disciple? Disciple language and follow language is not exclusive to Jesus. This is a rabbinical Jewish practice for young Jewish boys to grow up learning the Torah, memorizing it, interpreting it, understanding it, so that they could follow a rabbi and continue their schooling. If, as a young boy, as a teenager, they were now doing the career of their father, you know what that means? It means they weren't exceptional students. They weren't qualified to go and ask a rabbi to follow them. They didn't make the cut. They were screw-ups, in a sense, in a religious sense. They were screw-ups. Now, granted, they were fishermen. It's still a respectable, a respectable uh, career. It's still uh, seen as, hey, you're, you're still providing for your family. You're still doing something for the community. So they weren't uh, complete screw-ups, but they were screw-ups in a religious sense. So far, that's the only people that Jesus has called, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And now the very next person that Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple, is Levi, a tax collector. This is drama. This is scandal. Especially for Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they're thinking, they're probably looking at each other like, yeah, we didn't make the cut, we weren't able to follow our rabbi, but Jesus asked us to follow him. That's total, total countercultural, but that's really like special. Wow, we must, maybe Jesus sees something in us, maybe uh, other rabbis didn't see it in us, but now Jesus does, and so maybe there's a chance for us, but now a tax collector? Levi? Are you kidding me? He is a collaborator with the enemy. 
He is the most unlikely person for Jesus to go and to say, hey, come, follow me and be my disciple. Here's just a little bit of context about tax collectors. Tax collectors were collaborators with the enemy. Who's the enemy in the first century? Rome. Rome is oppressing the Jews, and they instituted a tax on the Jews to make their life a living hell. But tax collectors were these sort of deputized Jewish people. They, they were Jews, but they were working in collaboration with the Romans. The Romans. They, they, they uh, instituted the tax, but then the tax collectors, the Jewish tax collectors, were sort of like Jewish ghetto police. They took it a step further. They, in some cases, were allowed to, hey, just get the bare minimum that you need to give to Rome, but then if you want to charge anything in addition to that for your own personal gain, you can do that as a tax collector. And many of them did this. They were corrupt. They were hated by the Jews. They were known all throughout the territory as the worst. There was always this phrase in the New Testament, tax collectors and other horrible sinners. They're the same. This is who Jesus comes to and says, no, you, you come follow me. Can you imagine that? As Simon, Andrew, James, and John walking along with Jesus and the terror on their face, like, wait, who's he going to talk to? Oh, oh, he's talking to Lee? Oh, he's talking, he's talking to him? Not him. No, certainly not him. He can't follow Jesus. There's no way. I mean, yes, we didn't make the cut in a religious sense, but like he's a collaborator with the enemy. He's like the devil. Like we cannot ask him to follow Jesus. We do this, don't we, church? We do this. Like we all kind of come to church and we all sort of recognize our own brokenness and we're like, you're bad, yeah, I'm bad, we've made some mistakes, but God's grace is good, God's grace is sufficient. And then somebody else walks in the door and we're like, oh, but him? Oh, but them? Eh, I don't know about them. No, they, I, I don't know. We have limitations, right, in our minds of who's allowed to follow Jesus. Think about this, how ironic this is, is that if we were to put this on a job application, the qualifications that we all have for who should and shouldn't be a follower of Jesus are actually more than Jesus' qualifications for who he has following him. We put limits on who can and cannot follow Jesus. Simon and Andrew, James and John are probably thinking, you got to be kidding me, Jesus. Not him. This isn't possible. Levi is a traitor. He is a collaborator with the enemy. He has made our lives a living hell. He has kept us impoverished, perpetuated our poverty, and now he's going to follow him? He's more than just a screw-up. He's an enemy to the people. Let's see where this goes. Let's read the next verses. Uh, verse 15, it says this, later Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There it is. These were the kind. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. So not only are we asking Levi to follow Jesus, but now we're going to take it a step further and we're going to go to his house. Can you imagine that? A Simon, Andrew, James, and John having to go with Jesus to this person's house. It's one thing to be out sort of in public, out along the lake shore and see this man and have some interaction, but now to actually go to his physical house and to be with him and other disreputable sinners. Oh my gosh, can you imagine the discomfort for Peter, sorry, for Simon, Andrew, for James, and John. I don't, 
Jesus, I don't know if we're supposed to be here. Like, I don't think this is kosher, literally. Like, I don't think this is, this isn't for us. And think about this, like, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, I mean, they're, they didn't maybe make the cut, right? They didn't, they didn't qualify to follow another rabbi, but they were still moral, upstanding citizens, I'm sure. They were still observant Jews, and now they're going to this person's house. And I, I, I'm doing this creatively. I'm not saying this is in the text, but I, try to, I, I sort of try to put myself in the mental state of these early disciples and wonder, what were they thinking when they see this moment? Maybe if I were to put myself in their shoes, I might be thinking, well, you know, maybe this is just a one-off. You know what, maybe, maybe we're going to get some other Jewish people that didn't quite make the cut, um, that, that were respectable, right? But maybe Levi, maybe he's just a, a one-off. Maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus actually needs our help. And we're going to like work together and we're going to coach him up a little bit. Maybe we'll take him on a retreat and we'll do tax collector conversion therapy and just, you know, go through Jewish orientation classes and we'll get him all ready to go and then we'll go back out and do ministry again. And that's when we'll do it. Nope, we're going to go right to the guy's house and have dinner with him. Now, here's the thing. We're going to talk about kosher for just a little bit, all right? This is probably not a kosher dinner. There's tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Think about that. They know who they are. They know their place, and they're totally comfortable with it. They know what, what everybody else thinks about them. They're probably not. If they're already tax collectors, and they're already disreputable sinners, which means they have a reputation for their sin, it probably means that they're not working all that hard to uphold some kind of moral code for their personal lives, right? They're living it up. And so, they're probably not having a kosher meal. I mean, there's all kinds of rules if you're newer to the church and newer to the Bible about what you do and don't do with your food. You don't mix the meat of a cow with the dairy of a cow. And you, don't, you certainly don't have pork. And there's all different kinds of reasons that I don't have time to get into, but they're probably having bacon cheeseburgers at this party. And imagine Simon and Andrew, James and John, walking into this party being like, uh... I don't think we're supposed to be here. I, don't, I mean, I, I know I failed my, uh, my Torah memorization classes, but I know this isn't here. This isn't okay. Think about the place you are when you find yourself uncomfortable, not just with your own personal screw-ups, but now with somebody else's, with the enemy, the collaborator with the enemy, the people that you put in other categories, the people that are more unlikely than you are to follow Jesus? Imagine how discomfort, how much discomfort you feel when now you're not just noticing them, but now you're, you're beginning to associate with them. How does that feel? Let's see what happens next and see how they respond to this moment in verse 16. But when the teachers of religious law, oh, our favorite characters, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Here we go. We got these guys showing up. They always show up all throughout the New Testament. They're always popping up like whack-a-mole. You got to beat them back down, right? Like they're showing up and Jesus has to deal with them every single time. Teachers of the religious law are Pharisees. They've got all of the rules. They've got it all figured out. They have arrived. They know what it looks like to be moral, to be upstanding, to be respectable. And now they show up to this party. This is weird. Why did they show up to this party? And here's the thing about these, uh, these Pharisees, these teachers of religious 
law. They always show up, and they're always concerned. And you would think, well, they're concerned with the other people's sin, right? They're they're maybe wanting these people to transform, to be transformed, and to, uh, you know, learn how to behave a little bit better, how to be a little bit more moral. But notice even how they address the situation. They asked his disciples. They didn't ask Jesus. This always happens with religious people, with those who are always trying to follow the rules. They'll never talk to you directly. They'll talk around you or they'll talk about you to other people. They don't actually address Jesus directly. But here's an even more important thing that I want to point out. I want to go to the next part that just highlights different words. Why does he eat with such scum? We get a sense for how the Pharisees feel about the people that Jesus is with. They are scum. When's the last time you called somebody else scum? You might feel a little something about yourself for having the gall or having the, uh, just the ability to just say that casually. They have no qualms about just calling them what they are, what they believe they are. They are scum, these tax collectors and disreputable sinners. We get a very clear picture of how the Pharisees feel about them. And I, I thought for the longest time, like, why do they even care? Why do they even care about showing up to places like this? And then I realized... Like, they're not there to try to change the tax collectors and the sinners. They've already decided in their minds, in their hearts, what they feel about these people. What they're way more concerned about is Jesus. Why does he eat with them? They've given up on the scum. They're not there to transform the scum. They already have a designation. They are defined by their screw-ups. They are defined by the fact that they are collaborators with the enemy. They're way more concerned about Jesus. Why? Because he, in a sense, is a religious leader. Jesus is one of them. He's a rabbi. He is uh, supposed to be aware about morality, about the rules, about following the ways of Torah. He is recognized as a rabbi. He should be, in fact, the most observant Jew among all of these people. He should be following all of the rules, and that includes not associating with those kinds of people. This is what they're concerned about. And then I thought about my own experience as a religious leader, as a pastor, in the modern sense, and how there are always plenty of religious folks to go around. There are religious people who are concerned about your general sin, right? But the moment I start associating with those who struggle with their sin, those who are struggling in their brokenness, then there's a little bit more concern to go around. And this happens all the time with a lot of different things, and a lot of different situations, a lot of different groups of people. See, what almost always happens is if I start associating with those who are more unlikely Most of the time, in fact, in my personal experience, whenever I have shown care or concern for 
Anybody who identifies as any of the letters LGBTQ+, in that acronym, every single time, there is always a follow-up with questions. Well, what, what were you doing? What, what did you say? What did you tell them? How did they respond? What, always. There's always questions. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Like, I'm, I'm fine. I will have those conversations every single time. I am not afraid to have those conversations. But what strikes me as ironic is that any time that I associate with somebody who's greedy, with somebody who is spending way outside their means, with somebody who is cheating on their spouse, if I'm having dinner with them, if I am associating with them, no one will bat an eye. Nobody's concerned that I'm hanging out with them. Because we have identified certain categories, certain kinds of people that are beyond screw-ups. And this is the moment when the Pharisees show up to Jesus. Why is he eating with them? Look at how Jesus responds in this moment. Verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call, not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Oh, yes, that's a drop-the-mic moment. We love that. That's my Jesus. Yeah, we get all excited. These are the moments we're like, yeah, I follow Jesus. He says this kind of stuff to religious people. Oh, I love it when Jesus says this kind of stuff, except when we forget about this little line here in the middle. Mm, then it gets a little difficult. And we have to figure out, like, wait, uh, Wait, he's, he's, actually, he's actually putting people in categories now. Which category am I in? And it's easy to miss, and I get that. It's, it's kind of hard to see it because he kind of talks like Yoda. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, not righteous you are. You know, it's like a, it's a little hard to follow, but basically if we were to switch around the words a little bit, it would say, I am not calling those who think they are righteous. There are people that Jesus says, I'm not calling you to follow me. What kinds of people? Those who think they are righteous. He is not coming. If you think you are righteous, if you think you've got it all figured out, if you are here to be a gatekeeper for other kinds of people that you want to keep outside of this church, Jesus has not come to call you. You okay with that? Here's the reality. Those who think they are righteous, because the reality is, is nobody's righteous! Nobody is. It's all about a state of mind. Those who know they are sinners, who know they don't have it figured out, who know they are screw-ups, know they are unrighteous, know they are enemies, know they are hypocrites, know they are collaborators with the enemy. All of those describe me. He has called you. He has called me. He says, if you know you are a sinner, you're on the team. I've come to call you. This is what Jesus does. If you've got it all figured out, life is going to be miserable for you if you're part of a church. Because you are going to take on the responsibility to have to check everybody at the door and to say, okay, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. Ooh, hmm. Not you. Do you want that responsibility? It's tiring. It's fatiguing. Early on in my ministry career, I was a gatekeeper. 
I, oh my gosh, I had all of the lists in the world to, to decide who was in and who was out. And for a while, it felt really good. It feels really good to be in control. It feels really good uh, to have checklists and to mark them off and be like, all right, I am accomplished until you see it dehumanizing people. My qualifications on the job application for follower of Jesus are lists and lists and pages and pages longer than Jesus's. Are you a screw-up? Are you an enemy? Do you know it? Great, you're on the team. This is who Jesus calls to follow him and to be his disciple, to follow all of the ways that he lives, to behave the way that Jesus behaves. And he breaks the rules a lot of times. Otherwise, why else would the religious people show up? I'm going to break the rules at times and maybe not even know it. And it's going to cause consternation. But because I'm a religious person, it's going to make the headlines just a little bit more. But man, if people get to enter into the kingdom of heaven, if people get to experience more love as a result of it, I'm willing to break some rules. Are you? If you know you're unrighteous, if you know you're a sinner, this is who Jesus calls. Here's the thing. That story I told earlier about the Jewish ghetto police, Itzhak Heller. I want to come back to his story for just a moment. See, what happens is Spielman, this guy right here, is about to get on a train and to go to his death. His whole family, his, the, the whole community of the Polish Jews are all being rounded up to go on these trains. And you hate this character very early on in the movie. It's easy to hate him. Except there's this one redeemable moment. The moment that Spielman is going to look for his family and try to be with his family to join them on the train. Itzhak Heller pulls him aside and says, go, get out of here. Save yourself. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, I thought I was supposed to hate this guy. And then he saves his life in one redeeming action. The person that everybody's supposed to hate, the collaborator with the enemy, has this moment of redemption and saves his life, which takes you into the rest of the movie. Here's the thing. Levi? Levi does a similar thing. You know he doesn't always go by the name Levi? His name is most recognized as the name Matthew. Matthew. Matthew's kind of a big deal in the New Testament. You know why? Because he starts it. He starts the New Testament with his account of Jesus. He tells the gospel narrative not just to anybody, but to the Jews, to his own people, to the people that would have looked at him with utter disgust. Now Matthew is tasked with telling the story of the Savior, of the Messiah of the world to his own people who hated him. You think God can't redeem you? Get another thing coming. God's love is so 
expansive. It's so liberating. It's so welcoming. You belong. He will come to you and ask you to follow him regardless of your screw-ups, regardless of your status. He wants you on the team. The church is filled with screw-ups, filled with enemies, filled with traitors, hypocrites. I'll use the same illustration that Jesus uses. Sick people. We're all sick. And we're in need of Dr. Jesus, if I could put it that way. We need the doctor. We all do. And we're all in process. Those of us who know where we are, knowing takes a level of vulnerability, being honest. And this isn't entirely relevant to this message, but it's still somewhat related. And that we are all sick. We're all needing to be vulnerable. And some more than others for the sake of our own lives and health. See, what happened just this last week has been heavy on our minds as a staff. On Tuesday, we got some devastating news of a good friend of ours, a good friend of our church. We just had come out of a series called Out of Hiding. It was all about shame. It was all about mental health. But you could do a series and it's not going to fix everything. You could talk about mental health. It's not going to fix everything. This is an ongoing battle, an ongoing journey that many of us, if not all of us, are on. But that sometimes we get the devastating news that somebody loses their battle to mental illness. And so we lost a friend, Paul Perrine, on Tuesday morning. And he died. And it was a shock to us. It was devastating to us. And you go through all of the questions of, I wish I would have known, I wish I would have seen something. Couldn't I have seen the signs? Couldn't I have done something more? It's normal to go through all of those questions. And at the end of the day, sometimes we lose those battles to our own illness. For those of you who didn't know Paul, Paul sometimes was up on the stage singing, leading us in worship, and he danced and he moved around a lot. He was a greeter sometimes at the front door. He facilitated life journey classes. He did all of the things. He was incredibly involved in our church. That doesn't mean we're all okay. Some of us are not okay. And that's okay. The knowing is what's important. The vulnerability is what's important. Some of you, you need to talk to somebody. And I would just express this if I could while I can is there's a number that you can call or text, 988, 988. And we need to recognize that we are all in process. In fact, even the team's in process. They took my TV away a little bit too quick. I wanted to show you one more thing. Can I have the TV back, Josh? I'm sorry. That's okay. I want to show you this verse. I don't have life verses 
But if I were forced into a corner to pick one, it would be this from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. In fact, I'm going to stand back. I wouldn't encourage you to take a snapshot of this or just mark it in your Bible because I want you to meditate on this verse this week. You are in process. We are in process. God is continuing to work within us. In us, None of us has arrived. None of us. The moment you think you've arrived, this church won't be great for you anymore. Because we're a whole lot of sick people who need a doctor. Meditate on this. Encourage one another in this. And then I want to give you a real practical next step as well. It's to come to be together, to continue to share a meal together. We're going to do that next week for Juneteenth. We're going to celebrate freedom. I don't know what Bridget's message is just yet. I don't know what she has in store for us, but I know that she is absolutely led by the Spirit and God is speaking things to her and I am excited to hear what she has to say to us, to inspire us, to experience the freedom that comes in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We need freedom. We need freedom from our pain and our hurts and our challenges. And Juneteenth just gives us another excuse to come together and to celebrate that freedom and to join together in a meal and to invite other sick people. Don't call them sick people. Don't, if you're inviting a guest, don't say, hey, you're a sick person. Why don't you come have a meal with us? Don't say that, uh, but just invite them. Let's share a meal together. Let's continue to find ways to spur one another on in hope and love Enjoy. I know the news I shared just now, and you can take the TV back now if you want to, is maybe heavy for some. Maybe some of you knew Paul and you didn't know this news yet. Sorry that that maybe came as a shock. And so we don't want to leave you alone in that. Um, In a little while after we sing together, we're going to have our prayer team come forward. Um, John will remind you of that again. Uh, But we want to pray for you, with you, for whatever it is that's on your heart, on your mind. Any of us that you see on stage, if you just want to process with us as well, you can. Don't try to do this life alone. We've said that a million times. We'll say it a million more. You're not alone. And God's love for you (laughs) it is more than you could ever know. Would you stand with me? God, a lot of us are hurting right now. Maybe we knew Paul, maybe we didn't. about the New Testament writer who questions where oh death is your sting and right now we feel it 
So God, we are desperate to know that your love is real. That it can actually transform us. We need to know that you are greater than our problems, greater than our mental illness. And so we look to you now and we ask for hope.